It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 18th, 2017. Yes, we will be doing our light episode. I'm going to mix it up a little bit. feel like trying something a little bit different. I'll explain in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up the Word of God and compare. Mm -hmm. Compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula and prophecies we need to be studying instead of the written word of God. Yeah, and over and again, we see that what's being passed off as popular preaching and teaching is far, 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 far from being actually biblical. And, uh, and so this is a warning work. Now, part of the, part of what we do here is we do the comparing and contrasting by giving you some good sermons, good lectures, things that you can sit there and go, wow, why is that sound so different? Then <laughs> what I hear over here and see there's a big difference between biblical teaching, good exegesis, and the other stuff. <laughs> the, the big manure pile of uh, really weird and crazy things that all seem to – the thing they have in common is a complete inability to understand at all or even desire to know what it is that the Bible says. So – yeah. All right. So every week we we have an episode that we try to call our light episode. It doesn't mean the topic is light. No, far from it. It's not that it's a light topic. It's that it's a singular subject, if you would. And so to change it up, I thought, you know, today let's change it up. Let's uh, check in with uh, Phil Johnson, not Bill Johnson, Phil Johnson, uh, the right-hand guy of uh, John MacArthur. And listen to a sermon he delivered back in November of last year titled A Double Dose of Gospel Truth. This is like a double-barrel shotgun of gospel. It's just great. And uh, it's it's based upon 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. He will read that out. And I want you to watch how he does what he does. Um, as far as Baptist preachers go, Phil Johnson, I don't think there's like many people in his league, and he might even be in a league of his own. Uh, but the idea here is is that you're going to see that he is careful. He is measured. His cross-references all work together as bonafide for real good cross-references. He properly distinguishes law and gospel, pulls in you know other clarifying portions of Scripture, and also has his pulse on what's happening 
uh, in the uh, in the culture in the church today, so that his sermon doesn't come off as some kind of a you know as you know the, the out of step with reality or anything like that. No, I mean it's just absolutely just clinically precise, just spot on. And so we're going to be watching a careful, careful, meticulous, and skilled surgeon of the scriptures today dive in. And that, that's kind of the idea. So uh, with that, let's get to it. Here is uh, Phil Johnson and his uh, sermon titled, A Double Dose of Gospel Truth. Here we go. Turn with me to 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. This is one of the best summaries of the gospel you will ever read. I'll read it to you. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Two verses there, and they are a perfect pair. Both verses say essentially the same thing. John is repeating himself in that second verse, but he uses different words and with a different emphasis. Both verses, notice, speak of God's love. Both of them say that God demonstrated his love by sending his son into the world for us. Those two verses are also, of course, an echo of the most famous and familiar text in all of Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And again and again in Scripture, you see that God's love is graphically demonstrated in the sending of his Son on behalf of whoever would believe. This is a common theme, especially in the writings of the Apostle John. John, you know, was deeply moved and profoundly affected by the love of God for him. Remember that he, uh, throughout his gospel, his written account of the life and ministry of Christ, John never once refers to himself by name. He never writes in the first person. But when he wants to speak of himself, he calls himself that disciple whom Jesus loved. You find that expression in John 13, verse 23, and then in John 19, verse 26, John 20, verse 2. As he gets towards the end of the gospel, he uses it more and more. In John 21, he uses it twice, verses 7 and 20. So he is frequently referred to by Bible teachers and commentators as the apostle of love because he had so much to say about the love of God and its ramifications. This was such a central theme in his gospel and every one of his three epistles, he mentions the love of God. And the very pinnacle of John's treatment of the love of God comes in the final phrase of the verse just before our text, 1 John 4, 8, this is perhaps John's most memorable and most profound statement about the love of God, especially the final phrase of this verse, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. That's one of the most significant and meaningful statements in all of Scripture, and it means that when you boil down all the truth you have about the attributes of God uh, boil it all down to its very essence. Nothing is more godly, nothing is more godlike, nothing is more perfectly holy, nothing is more reflective of the character and the nature of God than love. 
In fact, love is so much at the heart of God's character that it's, it's neither hyperbole nor understatement to say that God is love, which that statement elevates love to the highest of all virtues. Of course, that agrees with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the one virtue that sort of gathers up and includes all the other virtues you could name. You can see that clearly when you study the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. You break all of that list down and analyze the ones that come after love. He starts with love. Analyze all the others, and you'll see that they're all expressions of love. Because Paul gives a similar discourse about the attributes of love in 1 Corinthians 13, which is a whole chapter devoted to the subject of love. And what Paul does there is show how rich and deep is the quality of authentic love. In fact, let me read it to you because it's a familiar passage, but it's worth a quick review. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, he says, "'Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude.'" It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. In other words, what he's saying is that love includes and incorporates long-suffering and kindness and generosity and modesty and humility and courtesy, selflessness, mercy, goodness, purity, passion for the truth, patience, faith, hope, and endurance. All of those are derivative values, derivative virtues that are subsumed and included in genuine love. That's how genuine love expresses itself. And that's why Romans 13 says, Romans 13 verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. And Colossians 3.14 says, love binds everything together in perfect harmony. No virtue that you could ever name is more sweeping or more comprehensive than love. In fact, every other virtue, every fruit of the Spirit, every positive moral value in the universe all the qualities Christ's names in the beatitude, all of it is included in, and all of it is a subset of the principle of love. And love is uniquely eternal. Not every virtue is eternal, you know. Hope and faith are uniquely earthly and temporal virtues. Because when we see Christ face to face, our faith and our hope will be realized According to Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so we won't have any need of faith in heaven because then we will see face to face. Hope also will be unnecessary because according to Romans 8, 24, hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? So faith and hope are not eternal values in the same sense love is. Love is eternal. We will love God and we will love one another perfectly and without any impediment for all of eternity. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, at the end of that chapter on love, Paul writes, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because God is love. You, you couldn't say that about faith or hope. 
But love is such a superior virtue that it embraces and encompasses all the other essential virtues, and that is why Scripture tells us, 1 John 4, 8, and also 1 John 4, 16, twice in this chapter, John says, God is love. Now, understand what this is saying. God is love. It doesn't mean merely that God is loving and benevolent towards his creatures. It includes that truth, of course, but what the Apostle John is saying is that love itself is of the very essence of who God is. Love originates with him and flows from him, and in fact, this is the point John is making in this chapter. So much does love flow from God that the only way to know authentic love is to know God. And by the same token, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, obviously, there are a lot of utterly wrong notions about what that means. Our, Our generation, perhaps more than any other previous generation, has corrupted the definition of love and twisted it so completely out of shape so that we don't really always have in mind what the Bible means when it says God is love. The concept of love that comes to our minds is partly framed by a corruption of the idea of love that we get from secular culture. Most of what goes by the name of love today is actually an evil counterfeit. The sexual revolution of the 1960s managed to sell our society the notion that the principle of love encompasses and includes every kind of illicit lust. Love has, in essence, been replaced by lasciviousness and by a sinful tolerance of almost everything that's immoral and unholy. And that, that broad-minded sort of anything-goes mentality is what most people today have in mind when they talk about love. That's not love at all. Our culture has embraced homosexuality and fornication and marital infidelity and every other kind of evil passion, and we call those things love. And if you dare to suggest that those things are not authentic love, or more accurately say that they are, those things are lewd and immoral, if you say that, you will be branded as unloving and intolerant. And so society has turned love on its head and replace the virtue of genuine love with a counterfeit love that's really nothing but promiscuity. I was asked many years ago to do a seminar on postmodernism at the Shepherds Conference. I, I think I repeated it here in Grace Life a few years after that. Some of you may remember it. And one of the points I made is that postmodernism has redefined love so that we think of it as a kind of benign tolerance of every opinion and every point of view. Postmodernists love the idea of tolerance, but what they, what they mean is that they will tolerate everything but intolerance, and they call that sort of broad, anything-goes attitude love. Any decent parent knows that's not love, and it's not loving at all to give permission for anything and everything. And so when you tell the average person in this postmodern society that God is love, they imagine that what you mean is God is completely passive and tolerant and totally benign and nothing to fear, and He is accepting of all the various perversions that go by the name of love today. There are churches in our community you could go to this morning and hear them proclaiming that idea. Sadly, they imagine God as a friendly, placid, 
never angry deity who smiles on their sin and, and is willing to overlook sin in the name of a tolerant, lenient, broad-minded minded notion of love. And, and they think everyone's going to be okay in the end, and, and no one's ever going to face any kind of stern judgment or strict justice because that's what they mean when they say God is love. That is probably the prevailing postmodern concept of God, and it is a vast and monumental change from the way our great-great-grandparents thought of God. When they thought of God, most of them thought of Him as someone to be feared. He is, after all, the judge of the universe, the one to whom vengeance ultimately belongs, according to Scripture. He's not a God who winks at sin or overlooks iniquity, but in the words of Hebrews 2, verse 2, every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution. In Exodus 23, verse 7, God Himself speaks and says, I will not acquit the wicked. Exodus 34, 7 says, God will by no means clear the guilty. So God's love clearly does not mean that He is tolerant of sin or, or passive towards the punishment of sin. And that's why Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A hundred years ago, or maybe 150 years ago, that was universally understood by evangelical Christians. In fact, some of the preaching in the mid-19th century seems to have been perhaps too heavily weighted in its emphasis on the severity of God's judgment. I remember reading in the biography of D.L. Moody years ago when I was a new Christian, and there's a story in there in 1868 when Moody was ministering in Chicago where he had founded a Sunday school that eventually grew into Moody Church. Moody had not yet gained a sort of international fame as an evangelist. He'd made one trip to England, but not primarily to preach, just to visit churches and listen to British preachers, and somewhere along the way he met a young man named Harry Morehouse, who was a short, sort of baby-faced, short little squinty guy, not far out of his teens, and he was a converted pickpocket, just this wiry little guy who Moody thought was completely unimpressive. He wasn't at all impressed with the guy, but Morehouse offered to come to Chicago and preach for Moody, and Moody more or less blew him off. And shortly after Moody got back to Chicago, he gets a telegram from Morehouse saying he's in New York and he's ready to come to Chicago to preach. And Moody replies with a note that simply says, if you come west, call on me. And he later said he thought he wouldn't hear any more from the guy, but Morehouse showed up in Chicago just when Moody was leaving town for a week. And so Moody instructed the deacons to let this guy preach at the midweek service. And when Moody returned, the church was holding meetings every night with Harry Morehouse preaching. And Mrs. Moody told her husband, preaches a little different from you. He, he preaches that God loves sinners. And Moody's reply to his wife, I think, reflects what many Christians of that era thought. He told his wife, if he says God loves sinners, he's wrong. But Moody went and listened to Morehouse preaching and came away convinced that this little converted pickpocket was correct because for an entire week, Morehouse began every message with John 3.16 and then he would trace the theme of God's love from Genesis to Revelation. And Moody said he saw clearly for the first time how prominently the love of God is 
featured in Scripture. This was a major turning point in, in Moody's ministry and his understanding of Scripture. And as he began to preach about the love of God, God used Moody to reach two continents with the gospel. Our generation, I fear, has gone to the opposite extreme. The typical person today has no concept of divine justice or the fear of God. People simply assume now that God loves sinners. Of course, God loves everybody, right? They presume on his mercy. Our generation is totally imbalanced in the opposite direction. The pendulum has swung all the way over, and people today have no real appreciation for the love of God because they've never heard anything about God's wrath against sin or his absolute unbending righteousness as the judge of all the universe. Those things aren't talked about. When I was just 15 years old, in 10th grade, I think it was, uh, one of our assignments in English literature class was to read, this was in a secular school, I, I don't think they're doing this these days, but we were assigned to read Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I read that as a 7th grader, I think it was, no, 10th grader, 10th grader. And uh, we, we were supposed to write our evaluation of that sermon. Edwards starts, you know, with Deuteronomy 32, a kind of obscure text, or at least one we, we don't hear quoted a lot, where God himself speaks, and that text says, this is God speaking, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and things that shall come upon them make haste, for the Lord shall judge his people. And Edwards, you know that sermon. If you've never heard it, you should. You can actually listen to it on iTunes these days. But he paints some very vivid word pictures about how little there is that separates each one of us from the threat of eternal calamity. He says it would be perfectly just for God at any moment to end our lives and bring us before his throne of judgment in an instant without warning. He pictures the sinner like a a little spider hanging by a thread over the gaping yaw of hell and the eternal abyss of fire, and, and he says that God has the right and the power to cut that thread at any time and judge any one of us. And he points out that it's only God's extreme mercy that has permitted us to live as long as we've lived. And it is a frightening sermon. It's a scary sermon to read, especially if you understand that everything Edwards says there is perfectly true and completely biblical. But I, as a 10th grader, had come from a, a church background that was totally liberal, where that was not at all the concept of God that was taught. All we ever heard was about how tolerant and benign God is and how he's not to be feared. And when I first read Edwards' sermon, it struck me as absurd that anyone would think that God is a stern judge. I wrote that idea off as an antiquated idea from a primitive age. And my best friend in those days was from a Pentecostal background. In fact, his father was a full-time evangelist and faith healer with the Assemblies of God. And so he wasn't really any more doctrinally sound than I was, but I was always interested in his opinion, and his church taught a totally different concept from my church as well. And I remember that I asked him, what did you think of that sermon? And he was absolutely outraged that anyone would ever portray God as angry or vengeful against sin. He had no concept of whatsoever of divine judgment or the wrath of God. God is love, he told me. 
as if he believed that meant God could never possibly be displeased with sin. And, of course, that's what I believed, too, at the time, and, and that's also the prevailing notion of God's love today. But I have to tell you, that is a lie. God's love does not nullify his wrath. God's compassion for sinners does not change the wages of sin. If God were to overlook sin or just let evil go unpunished, he would compromise his own righteousness. And therefore, God's perfect righteousness demands that sin be punished in full. In other words, God's love doesn't mean that he's indifferent towards sin. God's love is not a passive disregard of this world's evil. That would be apathy. That's not love, that's apathy. But God's love is active and dynamic and proactive. He takes the initiative in dealing with sin, and he shows his mercy not by overlooking or ignoring our transgressions, but by redeeming us at great cost to himself from the destructive power and the bondage of sin. That's the gospel. That's the point of our text. Because immediately after saying, God is love, the Apostle John makes these twin statements that we have in our text, showing how God manifests his love. The love of God is manifest not in a passive indifference, not in a sort of benign, grandfatherly, you know, apathy about sin. The love of God is manifest, here's how, in this the love of God was manifest, verse 9, among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then verse 10 restates the same idea in even more graphic and, ex- and vivid terms. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's a progression in those thoughts, and, and I want to trace it for you. There are actually four distinct points here in the flow of thought, and I want you to be ready to take them down maybe if you like to take notes. I'll give them to you in a way that will make it easy for you to take them down. Four ways God demonstrated his love for us. Number one, he sent his own son. He sent his own son, verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Stop there. You want to see how God manifested his love? Here it is. He sent his only son into the world, or as the New American Standard Bible has it, he sent his only begotten son into the world. That's a literal rendering. John uses the Greek word monogenes, which means both only begotten and it can mean one of a kind. It can mean either thing. And there's actually a a world of important theology wrapped up in that word, monogenes. God sent his only begotten son into the world. That underscores the fact, first of all, that Christ existed before his incarnation. You and I were born into this world. We didn't exist before we were conceived in the union of our parents. So we had a beginning. Christ did not. He was sent into this world. And here the Apostle John is echoing what he says at the very beginning of his gospel. Christ is eternally preexistent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So this is a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. The fact that he existed in the beginning means he couldn't be a created thing. You know, Arius, the arch-heretic, the ancient heretic who denied the deity of Christ and and planted the seeds for Jehovah's Witness theology, he insisted that there was a time when Christ did not exist. The Apostle John says the opposite, that he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That clearly means he himself could not be a created being. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Finding for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfindingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Balance of today's sermon on a, you know, kind of a double dose of gospel truth from Phil Johnson. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor has no precision or desire to actually preach God's Word correctly. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Well, when you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. Well, an amount that you pick. That's right. Uh, lowest rank in our crew is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month after that. Gunner's made at $24.95, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable, too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's good sermon 
from Phil Johnson, a double dose of gospel truth. Here we go. Now notice, both John 1.14 and our text, they both use that Greek word monogenes. John refers to Christ as the only begotten from the Father. Again, that word monogenes, which can be translated either only begotten or one of a kind. You'll find it only in the translated as only in the ESV, which I've been reading, and only begotten in the New American Standard Bible. And the word actually carries both meanings. It's an important term because it is used purposely by John to explain the eternal relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity. That Greek term, it was a familiar word in the first century. It's used several times in the New Testament, and it always refers to an only child. For example, Luke 7, where Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead in the village of Nain. And Luke 17 says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man had died who had died was being carried out, the only son, monogenes, the only begotten son of his mother, and she was a widow. So this was her first and last-born only son who could carry his dead father's line into future generations, and now he was dead. And so this was a heavy loss for her, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And then a chapter later, Luke 8, he encounters Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter is dying, verses 41 and 42, and, and falling at Jesus' feet, Jairus implored Jesus to come to his house for he had an only daughter, and again, it's monogenes, an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. She was his only child, in other words. She is his only begotten, and Jesus healed her. That word means she wouldn't have had any brothers either. It wasn't just that he was his only girl offspring. She was the only child he had, and Jesus healed her. And then just another chapter later, Luke 9 Luke uses the same expression again, verse 38, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child, monogenes, only begotten, my only begotten. That's the sense of this word. It refers to an only child. Someone who has brothers or sisters would not be referred to as monogenes. The only exception in the New Testament is Isaac, you know, who had an illegitimate half-brother in Esau, but Hebrews eleven seventeen refers to him as the only begotten son of Abraham, because in the strict legal sense, he was an only child. He's the only legitimate child of Abraham. I, did I say Esau? I meant Ishmael. So when Scripture repeatedly refers to Jesus as monogenes, the, uh, the monogenes of God, it's referring to him as someone who has a unique role and a singular relationship with his father. Now, you might ask, how can that be? Because, after all, every true believer is a child of God. We're all members of that family. Christ is like our elder brother. How can he be the only begotten? John 1.12, just two verses before John first uses this expression, monogenes, to refer to Christ... John says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So every believer is a child of God. And yet, in the eternal sense, going back to eternity past, Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. 
His relationship to the Father is unique and eternal. That's what defines the inter-Trinitarian relationship between Christ and the Father. We're adopted sons and daughters. He's the only begotten. And that's an eternal relationship. It defines the relationships within the Trinity. Let me show you what I mean. The classic Old Testament passage that speaks of the Father begetting the Son is Psalm 2, verse 7, a psalm that has reference to Christ. And this is God the Son speaking prophetically in the psalm, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And the writer of Hebrews then quotes that verse in Hebrews 1 to show that Christ is the Son referred to there, and He is infinitely superior to the angels. That's the point in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1 verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my Son, today I've begotten you? Or quoting now from 2 Samuel seven fourteen, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And the point Hebrews 1 is making is that Christ's position as the only begotten Son of God makes him something more than an angel, proves that he is more than an angel. It's something that pertains to his deity. The very next verse, Hebrews 2 verse 6 says, says so. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So the expression only begotten son is therefore John's way of signifying and affirming the eternal deity of Christ. That's the point here. Now, this is important. When was Christ begotten by the Father? Was it when his humanity was conceived in the womb of Mary? That's, I think, what a lot of people are inclined to think. But that's not it. Remember from Luke one thirty-five that Christ, when Christ was conceived in Mary, it was through the agency of the Holy Spirit, not the Father. Christ's conception as a human being is never spoken of in terms of the Father begetting him or conceiving him. I believe that if you put all of these references together, Scripture is very clearly teaching that Christ's begetting by the Father took place in not in time at all, but in eternity past. It's an eternal relationship being described here. Psalm 2, verse 7 quotes the Father speaking to the Son, "'Today I have begotten you.'" And the word today, I think, throws a lot of people off. If you try to interpret that as any point in time, you're going to run into doctrinal difficulties. But notice in Psalm 2-7, where that verse occurs, where that word occurs, the word today is connected with the decree of God, which took place in eternity past, not at any point in time. And so I'm convinced this is the true meaning of the expression, today I've begotten thee. It's not speaking about an actual day in time. This is a reference to eternity past, before any time was. And one thing is certain, this expression, only begotten, clearly describes Christ's relationship with the Father, not his origin, because as John labors to make clear in John 1, he had no origin, he had no beginning. He existed eternally. In fact, theologians have a technical name for this. They say that Christ is eternally begotten by the Father. The the technical term is eternal generation. And don't ask me to explain it, because Scripture doesn't attempt to explain it, and it's it's a deliberately oxymoronic term. It seems to contradict itself, because begetting, in our 
way of thinking typically speaks of how something began. Eternal speaks of something that had no beginning. So it's eternal generation. It's a rhetorical expression that employs contradictory terms because there's no other way to explain it, and there's nothing else to compare it to. Scripture is speaking of something that took place in eternity, not in time, and it's therefore not speaking of how Christ began, but how he relates eternally to God the Father. And let me show you something else. I don't want to get too technical here, so we'll back out of this pretty quickly, but one other thing. I've said this expression, only begotten Son, explains the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is never said to be begotten by the Father. He could not be begotten because Christ is the only begotten. And instead, when Scripture talks about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Father, John 15, 26 says, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And it uses a word that evokes the idea of breathing. The Spirit proceeds from the Father like His very breath. And again, that's an eternal reality, not an explanation of where the Holy Spirit began, because the Holy Spirit didn't have a beginning any more than Christ did. So Christ is eternally begotten by the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. What's the difference? I don't know, because I don't know of a single theologian who can explain it Throughout the long history of the church, the best theologians have recognized that there is a difference because it's different terminology and they're both biblical terms. It's a difference that defines and distinguishes the relationships between the persons of the Trinity. Christ is the Son of the Father, the Holy Spirit is the breath of the Father, and it's the Trinity. They're co-equal, co-eternal. The key to understanding it is to see that the kind of relationship it establishes is a father-son relationship. It's the closest of all relationships. It's marked by the most personal and intimate kind of familial love. God's love for his only begotten son. That supersedes God's love for any mere creature. And that's what makes our text so stunning. Because despite the fact that this is his only begotten Son, and his love for the Son must supersede his love for all creatures, yet because of the depth of his love for his creatures, God sent his only begotten Son into a sinful world to redeem mere creatures who have no intrinsic merit of their own. He sent his Son in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. And that brings us To the second point, if you're going to take these down, and I hope you are, first proof of God's love is that he sent his own son. Second, he sent his own son for our sake. He did this for our sake. Look at the end of verse 9, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. See, we deserve death and damnation because that's the wages of sin. And yet, God sending His Son into the sinful world was with the express purpose of giving us life instead of death. Now, I've already said that God's love doesn't automatically nullify or eliminate His wrath against sin. And I'll show you in a moment why that's still true. But there is a sense in which God's love is a greater force than His wrath. Let me explain what I mean. God's love includes an element of mercy 
that Scripture portrays as inexhaustible. At least 50 times in the Old Testament, we're told that His mercy endures forever. There's a sense in which God's mercy runs deeper and is more powerful than His wrath. Or, Or perhaps a better way to say it is that God's love flows freely from His heart in a way that His wrath does not. Ezekiel 18.32, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. And Ezekiel 33.11, he repeats it, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Lamentations 3.32 and 33 says, Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And the Hebrew expression in that passage literally means that affliction doesn't come from the heart of God, the way love does. In Isaiah 27, verse 4, God speaking says this, fury is not in me. By contrast, love flows freely from the very heart of God and it is eternal. According to Psalm 103, verse 8, and at least seven other verses in the Old Testament, he is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy. That's the character of God. First Timothy 2 verse 4 says he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And does it surprise you to hear a Calvinist say that? But notice the context of First Timothy 2. The chapter begins with Paul saying this, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, even if you didn't vote for them, (laughs) that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires, and the, the Greek word there is thalo, who prefers, who is disposed to, who would be pleased to have all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, take that all in context and notice from verses 1 and 2 that the the expression all men in that category, in that context, refers to every men of every category, every class, every station in life. In other words, all without distinction, including kings and people who are in authority. We're to pray for them and intercede for them and make supplication to God on behalf of them, and this because this is good and acceptable. It's God's character to prefer that they would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth rather than that they would continue in rebellion against Him and incur His judgment. If God preferred otherwise in the absolute sense, if He took pure delight in the destruction of His own creatures, some people sadly teach that He does, if He were like that, He would not be the God of mercy revealed in Scripture. And therefore, Scripture says He shows love in the form of kindness and common grace to all, including his enemies. That's precisely why then the reason Jesus gives for commanding us to love our enemies, Matthew 5.45, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. In other words, be just like your Father. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, he shows a merciful kind of love, a merciful expression of His love 
to every creature. And yet I say again, God's love, as great and as far-reaching as it is, doesn't automatically nullify or eliminate his wrath. More on that in a moment. But back to our text. And remember that God's love is manifest by sending his son into the world so that we might live. That's the aim and the goal. Christ himself said so, John 3.17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And John 12.47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And Luke 9.56, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Christ came on a mission of mercy, not judgment. So if you're taking those down, God sent his son. He sent his son for our sake. Now third... He sent his son for our sake in spite of our unworthiness. He did all this in spite of our unworthiness. Look at the text again, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, all the love in this equation originally came from God. It was initiated by him, even while we were still his enemies. Look down at verse 19, the one we talked about last time I spoke here. We love him because he first loved us. Now, that is precisely backward from the way it ought to have been. We owe God our love. That's the first principle of divine law. That is the first and great commandment, according to Jesus in Matthew 27, uh, 22, 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. God deserves our love. We owe it to him. He alone is worthy of our love. We have no rightful claim to his love. There's nothing in us that is good or holy or worthy of love from a righteous God. You'd think that if the love were flowing only one way, it would be we who loved God. But notice, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That's an amazing statement. It reflects and reveals the utter depravity of our sinful hearts. We ought to have loved God, but we didn't. Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So we're not worthy of God's love. He loved us anyway. He initiated our salvation. He reached out to us in love, even while we hated Him and spurned His goodness and set ourselves against Him as His enemies. By the way, the doctrine of election is implied and assumed in this truth. God reached out to us in love and drew us to himself. That's exactly what verse 19 means. We love him because he first loved us. Paul's epistle to Titus describes how hateful we were as unregenerate sinners and how God reached out in love and drew us to Christ anyway. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that, the Apostle John says, is the perfect picture of divine love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. So, Follow the development of his argument here. Here's the ultimate manifestation of God's love. He sent his own son... 
He sent his own son for our sake. He sent his own son for our sake in spite of our unworthiness. And now fourth and finally, he sent his own son to die for our sake in spite of our unworthiness in order to take the punishment we deserve. This is the pinnacle of the argument, verse 10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not only did God send his son into a hostile world on a mission of love and mercy, the price of that mercy was death, and not merely death, but death on a cross as a sacrifice for sin, a sin offering, or in the words of our text, a propitiation. That's an important word, propitiation. You hear me use it a lot. I hope you understand what it means. I realize it's one of those big-sounding theological words that doesn't sound very user-friendly, but it's crucial that we understand what this means. Don't be intimidated by the size of the word. It's really very simple. A propitiation is a sacrifice that is offered to appease or satisfy divine wrath and divine justice. In the first century, every pagan would have understood very well what propitiation meant because all the pagan religions had the idea of propitiation at the forefront of their sacrificial systems. Satisfying the wrath of an offended deity was usually very costly and sometimes even ghastly. Worshippers of Molech threw their babies into a fire alive in order to appease their deity. They, they referred to that as propitiation. This is not a pleasant word. Others tried to propitiate their various gods by sacrificing different things of great value. One thing they all understood is that propitiation is costly. That was the point of the Old Testament sacrifices for sins as well. That's why blood sacrifices were required for sin. And that's why Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes an atonement for sin. But Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The cost of true atonement could not be paid with a bull or a goat. Those were just symbols that pointed to a greater sacrifice. The real price was the blood of an innocent victim, a spotless, sinless man who would die as a substitute for the guilty. And only Christ could qualify for that. That was the true reason he came, to die in our place and in our stead in order to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3.25 uses that same word, speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, you remember I said God's love can never nullify his wrath or cause him to abort justice by, you know, simply overlooking our sins. He doesn't just look the other way when we sin. Every sin must be atoned for. There was a price to be paid, and the price was the shedding of blood unto death. And so Christ came to die. In the words of 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the real wonder of God's love. He gave what was most precious of all to him, the lifeblood of his own dear only begotten son, to pay the price of sin in order to purchase eternal life for those who would repent and believe. 
Listen to the words of Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's love. That's why eternal life and forgiveness from sin are available only through Christ. Only he could be a satisfactory propitiation. Is that what you believe? Is that your one true hope of eternal life? If so, Scripture says eternal life is yours. You can rest in that promise. If not, you need to repent of your sins and confess your unworthiness and turn to Christ who is your only hope of reconciliation with God. He's the only one who can turn away the wrath of God on your behalf. Listen to the words of Christ from John 5, 24. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. So that's why he came, to demonstrate the love of God in saving unworthy sinners. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen to this, still Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whosoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you haven't believed, it says, you're condemned already. But notice how simple the way of salvation is. You're in 1 John 4. Look at verse 15, 1 John 4, 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we also in this world. If you confess with your mouth and believe on him in your heart, you can have boldness in the day of judgment. And that is my earnest prayer for all who hear this message who have not yet embraced the only begotten Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that great love wherewith you've loved us, a love we don't deserve at all, and yet you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You've bought us. We belong to you. Make us fit for heaven as you conform us to his image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is knockback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>